0: Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties.
1: And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canali here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it's after dark. It's Thursday night, pretty typical, but we are excited this week because we have a very special guest.
0: Yeah, this is good stuff. I'm you know, we're we're semi-remote. It's a little bit weird, but
1: and semi-after dark. But yeah, the guest makes this makes this worthwhile. So let's hit it. We have with us Majority Leader, the Maryland House of Delegates, Delegate Eric Lukey. Delegate Luki, thank you so much for joining us. I know that uh, we have a lot of Twitter banter back and forth and whatnot, but I know that uh, you're a friend of the podcast. You have some intros floating around that we use, so thank you so much for joining us tonight. We have a lot to talk about.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for having me, and yeah, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen all the time, and also, I just, before we get to anything else, I want to clarify that when I make fun of Michael Sanderson for his dad jokes, I consider that a compliment. I am myself a big proponent of dad jokes, so I apologize if I ever, you know, made, made him feel insulted, but, but it's a compliment.
0: Oh, I, I don't know if I totally buy that. Like you, you, you thought this was going to be like, come on the podcast, and this is going to be some sort of like, you know, eight mile throwdown, you know, joke off sort of thing. I, you know, I, this that's not the show. You're you're a policy guy. We're delighted that you listen to the pod and are a friend of the pod, and we, and this has been a long time coming. So we're really glad to have you aboard.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we'll get into a bunch of topics. We'll talk tax policy. We'll talk some environment stuff and parks and schools, all the stuff that you deal with every single day, Delegate Lukey in the Ways and Means Committee. But first of all, we mentioned you are the majority leader. So what does that actually mean? Does that mean you just have like a, a nice big office and you got an upgrade there? But, but, but what is majority leader? What is your duty there?
2: Well, I mean, under the rules, the only real job I have is to adjourn the session every day. But, um, you know, I, I think the best way to describe it is I'm kind of a minister without portfolio. Um, I uh, I have my fingers in whatever pies the speaker tells me to. Um, and, you know, under the current speaker, who's been um, great about giving me the opportunity to, to learn new things and do new things, I do a lot of press work, a lot of work on uh, our different initiatives out of the Democratic caucus. Um, and I help manage our floor debate uh, to make sure that goes well.
0: And caucus work is, I think, In my judgment, it's an underappreciated part of the political process in a large body, like the House of Delegates, right? You got 141 members in the House, and you've got two different parties represented. And independent of what the split is among the parties, the idea of joining with members of your party and talking about, we want to do this first, and we'll save this one for later, but when this thing comes up, everybody should be on the same page that's part of what makes a large body like that work effectively. I I think like you can, you can take your ninth grade civics class and you read about the pure democracy and all these sorts of things. But making a large organization work smoothly requires a team of people in leadership and part of it is through the party structure and that's just you know that's the way it works down the road in DC to some degree sometimes it doesn't always work there but in Annapolis um, I think that's a, it's a big part of the show so um, you you're you're a player in lots of things we, we we appreciate having you here talk about all that stuff but might as well get it out of the way majority leader kind of a big deal in Annapolis
2: <laughs> well, I I appreciate that. I mean, <laughs> mostly I just uh, I see myself as helping out my members, Um and you know that's that's a lot of it helping them coordinate, helping them organize, and helping the speaker get her work done. Um So it's it's been I, quite an honor to to fill that role.
1: I mean, and oftentimes, I mean, you mentioned managing the floor debate, but you're often getting up in, in the middle of intense debates and having to kind of reset the tone, right? And and reset the debate, reframe things. That, that's also a big part of this. I, I see you doing that a lot. So I would assume that's something that not, but you probably enjoy it anyway. You like to get up and debate. But a lot of that is sort of just calming things down, reframing things, resetting, pressing this, the restart button. Right. And that that's often what I, I hear you and see you doing on the floor.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, in all honesty, it's not just me. It's the minority leader as well does the same mm-hmm. thing. Our, our former minority leader, Nick Kipke, our current one, Jason Buckle. And yep. it's one of the reasons that sort of commitment to reason, debate and, and calming down some of the rhetoric is one of the reasons we haven't seen the same level of vitriol in Annapolis that we see in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, and I think it's been good for us as a state.
1: Yeah. Hats off for that. I yeah, couldn't agree more. So now that that's out of the way, we know you have a, a nicer office, too. Uh, you know, so anyway, well, we won't get into that. But let's talk about tax policy. I know it's one of your favorite topics. You deal with it every day on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, we are heavily invested in tax policy at the local county level. But obviously, there's a lot of important stuff going on at the state level as well. And and I think one of the first topics to get into the balance with state tax incentives, right, state and local incentives, um, this is a conversation that you could talk hours and hours and hours about. Everybody has a different opinion on, you know, giveaways versus incentives. Do they work? This is for energy, business, etc. And it seems like we have that debate every single year. There are certainly bills every year that want to give an incentive to someone, whether or not that's income tax or uh, you know uh, uh, property tax, all the gambit of, of taxes. So. Let's talk about that generally. I mean, what is your general stance, Delegate, on, on incentives? Let's, let's, I guess, focus on business first, right? Is it, is it to you, like, do you want the receipts? Do you want to make sure these are working? Or, I mean, where do you draw the line? Because it's always a fascinating debate in ways and means when we talk about things like the Enterprise Zone program or more jobs for Marylanders. These are designed to, to draw businesses to Maryland, and there are some upsides there, but there's also a cost. So, so what's your general, how do you draw that line?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I I think, you know, folks who run a a, a business, a a publicly traded corporation have a a responsibility to their shareholders to get the best deal possible. I see my job with business incentives similarly. Um, I have a responsibility to get the best deal for taxpayers possible. And that means trying to make sure that our business incentive programs are doing what they're supposed to do, that we're not just giving away money, that we're actually incenting new businesses to develop and grow and hire people. Um, so, you know, we've made it a policy over the last few years to periodically sunset all of our major tax credit programs so that we get a chance to take a look, do an assessment. Is this still working? Do we want to change course? And I, I think that's been good for us as a state. Um, we've worked hand in hand, with the counties where it, where it applies to the counties, with business, the business community, with lots of stakeholders. I, I think Maryland's in a better place now than it was a few years ago with the business incentives because of that attitude.
0: I, I think tax policy as a way to affect whether it's social policy or whether to, to try and encourage or incent certain types of business or types of behavior, I think it's underappreciated in that regard. Like I think everybody understands the idea of let's get some money in the budget for a new program to go do a thing. And every year there's a budget process and boy, we want to get the money in the budget for for the thing we support. But right across the hall is a committee that's talking about tax policy and the idea of let's change tax policy to to try and encourage a certain kind of behavior, move people in a certain kind of direction or bring businesses along in a direction we think is good for Maryland, I think it's an underappreciated part of getting stuff done and using fiscal policy as a way to get there. So, um, you know, in, in the Senate, they have a lot of this stuff consolidated in one committee. The Ways and Means Committee, I think, is an underappreciated part of those fiscal decisions that are important big picture.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and, um, it's one of the reasons I really enjoy the work. If, if tax policy were just about how much money do we need for government and, you know, how do we raise that? Um, then that's, that's a mathematical calculation. That's easy, but we do make a lot of those types of decisions and, and, you know, it's not, it's not easy work. It's very technical work. Um, we have fantastic staff in legislative services that's steeped in economics and statistics and law that helps us through it. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. It's underappreciated, and, and honestly, most voters don't even know those conversations are happening. It really doesn't hit their radar screen necessarily.
0: Yeah, it's not the sexiest stuff that goes on in Annapolis. We get it, but it's you know, I, I, I'm so I'm I'm an old time Ways and Means guy. I was a professional staff to the committee some years ago, and and still carry a torch for the work of the Ways and Means Committee. So a big big believer.
2: Well, once a Ways yeah, and means, awesome. Meaner, always a Ways and Meaner. So you're you're still an honorary <laughs> member of the committee. <laughs>
1: I like it. Yeah. So, on another, another, you know, incentive, right? We talked about business, but something that's, that's starting to blow up, and we know why. The state has committed to um, meeting certain goals when it comes to renewable energy, and so we're seeing a lot of these incentives, delegate, being proposed for energy, right? So, particularly this year, it looks like a lot of solar incentives, and a lot of that does come back to to counties in terms of personal property tax, uh, real property tax. Those are the the drivers, really, for counties when it comes to income. And there are policy decisions that have to be made at the state level. Counties are always showing up saying, hey, let us make that decision locally. But but when it comes to energy incentives, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, this is, again, this is really blowing up, particularly this year. I've seen a lot of these bills, not just for solar, but a lot of clean energy stuff. So what do you think about all the bills aimed at doing that? And, And obviously, again, it's for a reason. The state has to meet some of these goals when it comes to renewable energy
2: yeah I mean look I, I think it, it's 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 definitely a goal that that we're seeking to 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 reach to expand access to clean energy to expand energy production in the state um, but you know as you say it it is a complex issue and it, it affects a number of different types of taxes on the you know the county side, the personal property and real property side, I think on any issue any issue that impacts county budgets, we have a real responsibility as legislators to to have those conversations with the counties right what is the impact? Um, is there a better way to do this? Um, in a broader sense, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to see these types of incentive bills introduced and we've seen them introduced for years now. We have existing incentives related to solar and battery storage and all sorts of different things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there will come a point where our economy has transitioned, Right. And, and where we really do have a clean energy economy. And, and we have to, at that point, be able to go back and say, hey, maybe we don't need these incentives anymore because they, they won't be serving that same purpose.
0: I think that's probably the smart way to do this stuff. And you know, along the way, there's going to be friction with stakeholders you know, like local governments and, and all that sort of stuff. But I think along the way, you're asking the right questions to say, are we creating incentives that are going to change behavior or just – piggyback on existing behavior and end up rewarding stuff that was happening anyway I, I don't know that you ever can like find the absolute bull'seye there, but I think the committee has to struggle with with all those sorts of things that's part of what again part of what makes tax policy interesting
1: absolutely no doubt so while we're on the subject delegate a few years ago, you put in a bill and I think it was maybe to start a conversation, but I'll tell you it it certainly did, and we had uh that the Ways and Means Committee was overflowing. I think your Facebook, your social media, you were getting a, a lot of comments. Let's just put it that way. You were a, a big target for a lot of the, the business industry. You put in a bill that would have applied the sales tax in Maryland to most services. So we don't do that, right? But But talk about that. Talk about what that was like you know, how did it feel to get all this vitriol thrown your way? And I know you can handle it, but what was the thought process behind that? And it was certainly a conversation starter and was interesting to look at, you know, the people who showed up, the fiscal note, what was the thought behind that? And and how did it feel to, again, be be target number one for a lot of people?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I, I didn't run for office to only talk about easy things, right? Mm-hmm. And I, so, I mean, to take a step back, um, one of the big flaws in Maryland's tax structure is that we have a regressive tax system. And, and what that means is, you know, working class and middle class Marylanders pay a higher percentage of their income in taxes than do the wealthiest Marylanders. Mm-hmm. The main reason for that is the sales tax, right? Because people that don't make as much money spend more of their household budget on stuff, on the on the things they need to live every day. And we tax those things through the sales tax. Wealthier people, their, their household budgets tend to have a lot more services, things we don't tax, right? So so that contributes to this problem where we're essentially balancing our state budget more on the backs of people that can't afford it than on the backs of people that can. So, you know, the proposal was to, at the same time, expand some of our taxation, the sales tax to cover services, but also decrease the rate. So the sales right. taxes would have been going down on the stuff that people buy Um, But there would have been taxes now on on uh, the services that people buy. And, you know, the vitriol, I I, you know, honestly, most of what I got was just people reaching out to say, hey, I don't like this idea. And that's democracy. That's how it's Mm -hmm. supposed to work. Right. Mm -hmm. In in the modern political climate, of of course, you get people that say rude things on Facebook and you learn as an elected official. And and this is true of local elected officials, too. You you learn. You learn to brush it off. You learn that's just that's just par for the course. Um, But I thought it was a a good conversation to have, Um, and it you know that broaching that conversation about the regressiveness of the sales tax led to us, uh, among uh, among other factors, led to us developing some proposals we're pushing this year on the sales tax.
1: Right.
0: I think you got some of that some of that kind of stuff queued up, Um, and it, it seems like. Uh, at least the 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 house um house leadership and and the the folks you work closely with have some ideas about tax relief sort of reading the room right like we're in, in this peculiar economy we've got inflation pressure which is something most marylanders haven't really been feeling for the most part you know some of it's at the gas gas pump but it's like you know day to day um what are you all thinking on that front? We've seen pieces of this start to get public, but what does house leadership have in mind that might come out of this session sort of for the circumstance Marylanders are in today?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, the speaker was very transparent on the first day of session. One of the first things she said is we're going to focus on uh, pocketbooks. We're going to focus on working in middle-class Marylanders Um, and a number of the proposals, not just on the tax side, uh, a number of our proposals this year have focused on that. So, for example, the attention we're paying to child care and expanding access to child care is, is an important part of that because that's, trust me, I've got kids. It's expensive. <laughs> it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we announced last week and, and actually passed out of the Ways and Means Committee uh, as we're recording today um, a, uh, a package of bills we're calling the Family Budget Boosters um, because – Folks are telling us, you know, they're, they're, the inflation's hitting their pocketbooks. They're, there's a lot of folks still struggling. Um, so essentially what we're doing with these bills is trying to expand uh, sales tax exemptions for everyday items that people rely on that they need. So, you know, for the 600,000 Marylanders with diabetes, we're, we're eliminating sales taxes on diabetes care products. We're eliminating sales taxes on diapers and on baby bottles and car seats for Older folks that need access to home medical equipment, we're eliminating sales taxes on things like pulse oximeters and blood pressure devices. And Hmm. and the goal is really to to ease up some of that pressure on family budgets.
0: And I think that that probably gets to the regressivity issue that you mentioned earlier as well. We know know sales tax, as a matter of public policy, has a weakness that it, it tends to fall on people who are more. I don't, you know, hand to mouth sort of like you know, paycheck to paycheck, and and we make exemptions from the sales tax for things like buying food at the grocery store, right? We you don't tax that, you don't tax prescription drugs, and the reason for that is keeping in mind these are things that people need to spend money on rather than discretionary decisions. So the idea of extending that logic to something like diapers isn't you're not really forging like a brand new path. It's an extension of a logic. That Maryland is already embraced, really?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are other benefits to it, too. I mean, from the you know the local government perspective, doing uh, tax relief through the sales tax is I mean sales tax is purely a state tax, so that doesn't have consequences for local budgets um, as you know income tax changes or property tax changes would. So you know I, I, I feel very good about what we propose. the The bill's all passed unanimously, as you might expect. Um, everybody was very excited to vote for them. So, um, we'll have them on the floor next week and be able to have a a, a good, robust debate.
1: Yeah. I think everybody who was in the room added themselves as a co-sponsor, if if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, bipartisan, I think everybody can support these things. And I, I, again, I think you're right. I mean, diapers and things that, you know, hygiene products, things that people use every day, everybody has to use them. Makes a lot of sense to me. So while we're on the subject with tax policy, I want to bring up one more thing. It has to do with schools you know how, you know, we've talked a lot about the blueprint and Kerwin is how we really got our start with this podcast and got a following. we sort of broke down Kerwin piece by piece in ways that people weren't doing. And, you know, a few years ago, I, I think it was a few years ago, time is like stood still with COVID, but I remember I was in there in ways and means and you, you made a quip because often you have to, you have to always ask me a question just to, I see your light turn on and I'm like, here, here it comes. He's, he's got it. But you made a quip about, Hey, Maryland is unique, right? Where uh, most states uh, school boards have taxing authority. In many states, um, county governments in Maryland are unique in the fact that we do handle a lot of funding for our schools. Our school boards don't have taxing authority. And you you mentioned, hey, what, what would you think about if we were to give our school boards taxing authority, and that they would then be responsible for for funding schools? Um, that was sort of, I think it was it was an interesting question. And I, I we thought about it a lot. And I, I wanted to just get your perspective on, you know, how Maryland works based on other states that do give their school boards. It's sort of separate in terms of the ability to raise revenue to pay for schools.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I I asked that question at the time, sort of half jokingly and mm-hmm. uh, half also because, I mean, it is a real policy question that I think we should consider just because we've always done things the same way doesn't mean we need to keep doing that. <laughs> um, for me, it's always been a little odd the way Maryland does things because you know you have a situation where the uh, in most counties the elected members of the board of education are making spending decisions but they're not accountable for raising the money that that's necessary to fund the system um in most cases it's the county and you know the state does a lot to help but you know really if if taxes are too high locally it's it's the county councils and commissions that are bearing the brunt of that from taxpayers um so I've always thought it a little odd, um, and I, so I've raised it over the years periodically with with friends of mine on councils and commissions around the state, with you guys, and it's interesting. You know, people always step back and say, "Huh, that's an interesting question," um, but also, you know, there's there's a lot of inertia in terms of this is the way we do things now. Right. Why change
0: nice. things? You know, right. I, I think I think it's. I think in general, I think it's a healthy thing for policymakers to have that conversation every so often to take a step back and say, you know, maybe the way we've always done it isn't exactly right. I mean, one argument I think that is in favor of the way Maryland funds education is we're way less reliant on property taxes as the workhorse than Pennsylvania or New York or Ohio or other, you know, the the more conventional setting, because I grew up in the state of Ohio and my school district had a tax, but it was one tool. It was a property tax for the schools. And you know, back to regressivity and fairness in tax systems, uh, the property tax is wrought with regressivity and, and other issues that are, make it really unpopular as well. So, you know, I, I, there's probably no perfect solution there, but continuing to ask, do we have this right?
1: I think it's a healthy thing. I would yeah, agree. I mean, that's I would what agree. we're here for. That's what
2: we're here for. <laughs>
1: All right, so delegate, just to pivot a little bit, um, I want to talk about a bill that I know you're really excited about, and um, the Great Maryland Outdoors Act, and I want to talk about how we got there. But but I heard something the other day when you were uh, presenting testimony on this bill, you said it was a bill that you are the most proud of uh, since the time that you've been a legislator, and that that sort of stuck with me because you've had a lot of bills, you've done a lot of things, but let's talk about this a little bit. How we got from all the way back during the pandemic, you were going around the state. Right, you're visiting all these parks, and then uh, COVID happens, and obviously people needed to get out. But this was a big undertaking, I think, to to get from there to here. So I know you're really proud about this, and I want you to talk about it and tell people what this bill does and why it's so important.
2: Sure. Um, So Maryland State Park System is more than 100 years old now, um, and it's fantastic. We have gorgeous parks. Um, they were built largely in, in two eras, in the, in the New Deal era by the Civilian Conservation Corps and then in the 50s and 60s. But really, we've been under-investing in them for about 50 years now. Um, we, we don't have enough parks. Um, the parks we have are aging. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure that was built back in the New Deal era is it needs to be replaced, um, and we haven't been replacing it at a fast enough pace. We don't have nearly enough park rangers um, the park rangers we have aren't paid enough, so they often leave the state ranger service to go work for local park systems or the national park service because they can make more money. Um, so, you know, the, the, the parks have a lot of challenges to them. And what we saw during the pandemic was this incredible spike in visitation. Marylanders uh, during the pandemic went outdoors more than ever, certainly in my yeah. lifetime, yeah. Um, yeah. by the millions, literally the millions. So it, just to put some numbers on it, in 2010, there were about 10 million visitors in the state parks. Last year, there were about 20 million. So we, we doubled our visitorship in a decade. Same, almost the same number of parks. We've added just a couple. Almost exactly the same number of rangers. Um, so the system's under strain. And um, you know, I when when we started having these conversations after the last legislative session, myself, Senator Sarah Elfrith, the presiding officers, you know, I I, I didn't quite expect. The amount of support we've seen. Marylanders love their parks. I've never seen so much excitement from people about a bill that I've been working on because it's it's. I mean, these are these are places that are iconic to people. They're places that they grew up going to, that they take their mm-hmm. families to, um, and they're all of over the state. Right,
1: everybody a lot has memories at parks. Yeah, I
2: mean, look, you know, for people like me that grew up in Maryland, I remember going to Assateague State Park as a kid. I remember going out on the boats on Clopper Lake. I remember going to Deep Creek. Like these are, this is Maryland, right? Um, So, you know, given that level of support, given the tremendous support from the presiding officers, the leadership that uh, Governor Paris Glenn Denning, who chaired the State Park Investment Commission uh, for us, given all of that support, we've been able to craft a bill that um, I described in that same hearing as a moonshot. For Maryland state parks. And it really is. It's the largest single investment in our state parks in state history. Um, it'll create new state parks. It'll restore our older state parks. It'll significantly increase the size of the ranger service. It'll commit our parks to being more accessible to people that use transit, people with disabilities, you know, all sorts of groups of Marylanders. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I think the bill, it, it passed the first Senate committee hurdle earlier this week in the budget and tax committee unanimously. I think this is going to be one of the highlights of the legislative session um, in terms of good, solid, bipartisan work for the people of Maryland.
0: And leaving behind a big footprint, right? If if we end up making a sort of generational investment in recreational opportunities for Marylanders everywhere. And you've undersold the components of the bill to some degree. I mean, there's pieces in there about, you know, accessibility and equity, as well as just the breadth of offerings and making sure there's space for everybody to enjoy parks. We want to be able to get people there and, and, you know, make broad opportunities and so forth. So this this is one of those things that, you know, we could be looking back on, you know, that that old story. Well, when when was the best time to plant the tree? It's like thirty years ago. Like thirty years from now, we could be saying, "Thank God they did something like this back when they did," and that's that that could be a really good thing.
2: Yeah, I I, I um I I was serious when I said that. I it's I think the thing I'm most proud of working on. I I uh, I think this is a game changer for a lot of folks, and you know, for a lot of Maryland families, the parks are where you recreate because you can't you know can't necessarily afford to spend tons of money every weekend to go out. And you see that. I mean, you go out to any park in Maryland on the weekend, and it's people with their families. It's, um, I mean, these, are, these are places that are good for us and um, uh, good for the soul, good for your health. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I think it's an ex- extraordinarily well-designed bill. I take no credit for that. Um, that. That goes to Governor Glenn Denning and Senator Alfred and the DLS staff who helped write it. Um, I'm glad that it's become a bipartisan thing. And, you know, I think we'll see a number of new parks open over the next few years because of it. And just, the, I'll just give you one example of what I mean by this underinvestment, what we're trying to fix. There's a, a park, a state park that most people have never heard of. It's called Fort Tinalaway State Park. It's out uh, in Hancock, Maryland, right? And people who don't know where Hancock is, it's where Maryland gets really skinny out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, Fort Tenalaway was an early fort built during the French and Indian War um, to protect Maryland settlers who were on the frontier from attack by the French. And um, so it's a historic site, and it was designated as, as a state park decades ago. Well, in the early 80s, Maryland had a budget crisis. And in 1982, we closed Fort Tenalaway State Park, and it's still closed mm. 40 years later. And you talk to folks in Hancock, and, and they're just baffled. Why? Why – why would we have this gorgeous piece of land right next to the CNO Canal, right next to the Western Maryland Rail Trail, right next to the town of Hancock, right behind the high school? Why just leave it empty, doing nothing, right? Literally closed off. So, you know, places like Fort Talaway—that's that's what it's about. Um, and you know, the next generation of Marylanders will be able to go out and enjoy these places. Plus, it mean. helps
0: with our. With our you you never want to take your eyes completely off the French. I'm just I'm just saying, like, <laughs> so you know, I mean, it may, it may have been. Uh, dozens and dozens of fiscal years since we've had the dust up with them, but let's, let's not lose sight of you know, the whole game here.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we have to be cautious. <laughs> I mean, the French and also Ohio, you worry about Ohio sometimes. So. That's All fair time. too.
1: All the time. No, I mean, parks are certainly important to counties and the general assembly, I must say there's been a massive investment uh, mostly through the capital budget and last year. And I think this year again in our parks. So that's certainly important to counties And I'm, you know, this whole this bill. I agree, it's a it's a great piece of legislation. But I'm really a big fan of bringing all the people to the table to get a big thing done. And I like the fact that literally you watch this unfold, where you're running around visiting all the parks, and you're you're on Twitter. And then we started to see, you're right, like all the parks had to close every day because they were just at capacity. And I know you would always quip about that and, and retweet that and say, look, we got to do something. So you, you get the commission together. Everybody gets around the table. They come up with this idea and now it turns into a bill. So, I mean, I'm always a big fan of the process, but bringing all the right people to the table is the way to get a big thing done. And that's exactly what happened here. So So hats off to you. I, I agree. It's, it's, a, it seems like a great bill and it's a great investment and that your story about what's going on in Hancock, that's, that's pretty, I mean, I didn't know about that. So thank you for that. That's, that's pretty fascinating actually. And they'll be able, I assume to open back up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope they they're doing a, the, there's one more step. They're doing a historical study to see if they can find the location of the old fort. Um, but yeah, I think ah. in the next couple of years.
1: Okay. So, so, so parks, big deal. Um, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for that bill. Um, and for the testimony there. But let's let's pivot again to some just off the wall, interesting stuff. So, Michael, I'll let you be the lead on this issue, because you're really the the driver here and you put this into my head. So <laughs> let's talk about the, 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 the quirky budget issue that has now been resolved. But there's a, a bigger issue here. Right, Michael?
0: So, I think so. And maybe not many people join me in finding this a fascinating little question mark or asterisk in our structure of government in Maryland. But as you know, Delegate, Um, When the governor proposed his budget this year, there were some people saying, wait, there's not as much education funding as we had thought was coming through the Kerwin Blueprint Program. And um, we ended up with sort of a difference of opinion over whether a piece of that education funding was truly mandated. And there's a tale on this that goes back a decade or so that are actually longer than that. But um, the idea of the General Assembly can mandate governors to fund things in the budget, but if it's not airtight, then maybe it doesn't have the holding of law. So we had a few weeks of wondering how this was going to play out. and. Sent, just this week, uh, Governor Hogan came through with a supplemental budget. He has the ability to say, in addition to what I've submitted, here's some extra things, either moving money around or adding and so forth. And he came through with that extra education money. So I think it probably moots the issue for the moment. But I, but since since you're the navel gazer type, uh, I, I want I want to engage you on this because I think it's really interesting. Um, what might have happened if we had what if this governor stuck to his guns and said, I never had to fund that? I don't care what letter you get from the attorney general. I didn't have to fund it. Um, And what if the session just ended, the funding never happened? Would we have suddenly created sort of a weird new, would we have the the 2022 law, people will be talking for 20 and 40 years around, well, apparently it doesn't really bind the governor's hands. If the governor can can find some politically salient argument, you know, some future governor could just say, well, I don't need to fund libraries or whatever. Um, do, do you see what I'm talking about as a potential hole in the boat that could have come from this session?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I think though, you know, ultimately, had the governor not seen the light um, and provided that additional funding, I think it was like ninety nine million dollars for the city of Baltimore right. and, and twenty or thirty for Prince George's County. Right. Um, I, I think it would have ended up in court. I think you know the court of appeals eventually would have weighed in. And, and look, we saw that to some extent with the debate um, last year over unemployment insurance benefits, and you know the yeah. case yep. that was brought saying the governor had to you know, push the federal benefits through to Marylanders and the court eventually agreed that the governor was bound by law. So, um, but I, I do think on, in the case of mandates like this, it, it becomes after this year, a much less significant right. conversation because as the legislature takes over more budget authority, there's a lot less reason for us to do budget mandates in the first place, right? Cause we'll have more influence over the budget itself. Um, so I actually, I, I, I think there will not only be fewer budget mandates, I think we'll start to see some movement over the next decade or so in the removal of existing budget mandates and a reversion to a more traditional hmm. appropriations process like most states and, and the federal government have. Hmm.
0: And, and I guess that would be a natural follow through with, you know, with, with the question that was put before Maryland voters and they approved give the legislature some more authority in the budget process that most states legislatures have then to potentially have have maryland statute back off a little bit in some regards on these mandates what you know might be the natural balancing that would make some degree of sense here so that 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 wouldn't be an unreasonable way for this to play out i think Yeah.
2: yeah i mean we'll see it'll be interesting and of course you know, there's a lot of stakeholder groups and advocacy groups that like the mandates, right? They mm-hmm. they like mm-hmm. some assurance that they're going to get funding. So, you know, I, I I'm kind of fascinated to see how everything plays out with that transition in, in budget.
1: Yeah, counties are certainly one of those groups. I mean, we we've talked about the fact that um, usually we see a birfa right? And that's the, the bill that accompanies the budget that sort of makes things work, especially when you're you're in tough fiscal times this year. Uh, it looks like we're not going to need one, but that's where typically we would see those mandated formulas, uh, proposals to, to cut those formulas. And we'll show up and say, wait, you know, keep the community college funding in place. Don't cut the disparity grants. Um, so so I I am interested um, with, with those mandates potentially going away. You do lose some of that certainty, but it is a push and pull. And I think there you know, the it, it's sort of a fair deal, if you will, with what the voters approved. Um, but, but yeah, that's it's interesting. So maybe this is, um, is null and void at this point, but, but it sounds like you know the only, the only thing you could do if the governor did stick to his guns was go to court. So that would have been interesting. but, but as we mentioned, the governor did introduce a supplemental budget, which among other things included that, that funding that um, everybody seemed to think was there. So interesting stuff for sure, but we'll see. Um, and on this again, one of the other quirky things that we we really hate, this term of, of local aid, right? And this is this is something that shows up in all the budget presentations and the documents. And it's like, wow, it, local governments, you know, b- b- with property tax being number one, I think number two, they always like to say is aid from the state. And it, it seems if you were just perusing through those documents, wow, counties, municipalities, they are loaded with cash, right? They got money out the yin yang. And why are they, you know, why is my property tax rate what it is? And why can't they just, you know, why can't they cut everything? Look at all this money that the state gives them. But the reality is that most of this almost, I think like 86 or close to 90% of it goes directly to schools. So it does, the county government doesn't even touch the money, goes directly to schools. And look, we, we we agree that the state does a lot to help schools and that's a good thing. But can't we change that term delegate? Can't we say that is like, Education aid and get that out of this general local aid category, which makes us all look rich.
2: I, look, I, you, you all were talking up the position of majority leader earlier, but I will say to <laughs> you that this is one of those things that is entirely within the purview of the, 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 the truly brilliant people in the Department of Legislative <laughs> Services. Um, I, you know, I get the argument and it's interesting because every state has a different relationship between the state government and the, and the localities. Right. And, um, you know, to some extent, one of the reasons that Maryland provides a lot of local education aid is that we limit some of the taxing authority of our local governments, right? Our school boards don't have any counties can't do sales taxes. We cap the income taxes. So, you know, there's a reason for that. I get the argument. Um, but you know, I, I mean, ultimately I think, Nobody likes paying taxes, right? So, you know, I think whatever you call it, you'll still get some complaints.
0: Yeah. I, I just feel like for, for you and your colleagues, you get these reports from the very, very capable staff and they say, like, where do your tax dollars go, right? And there's always like a pie chart like that. And then when something like 42 cents out of the entire pie chart is going to aid to local governments you can't tell your, your your residents back home in the district, boy, I really delivered because I gave aid to local governments. It would just seem to benefit everybody to be able to say, look, like 38 cents out of every dollar is going right into education. You're with me. You love education just like I do. It just seems like it would roll off the tongue better. And then a tiny little sliver for, yeah, a little money goes for those local parks and for the local police departments and libraries and whatnot. But, Anyway, you know, this is a our little cause to lab over here. So. Yeah. I mean,
2: look, I, I think you underestimate the ability of politicians to, to <laughs> phrase things in ways uh, that are helpful. So trust me, I don't go home to my constituents and say we sent a lot of local aid to Montgomery County. I say we built some schools and put money in the classroom, you know, and
0: and funded. Hey,
2: we funded highway user revenues. So.
1: Wow. That,
0: that's how it's going to be this year. I like it.
1: All right. I like it. All right. That's, that's you know, we, we love how we use her. So there are paths forward, Delegate. There are. We've talked about them. We can do it. Um, and one more thing. I think you sort of agree with us here. And I think most people would agree. Um, constant yield. And I'll put a link in the show notes for this, exactly what it is. But it's this ridiculous requirement that no one understands. And um, we have to put an ad in the newspaper that essentially says, counties are raising taxes even if we're not raising taxes we may even lower the tax rate but if the assessor comes in and property values rise and the county's going to bring in more than it did from the previous year just because those assessments went up, uh, you have to put an ad in the newspaper, prescriptive in terms of the font size, and the, it, it's it's nuts, and it's in complete ease. And again, counties are raising taxes. When they are not raising taxes, the reality is assessments went up. So there are several bills this year, and I know the Ways and Means Committee has them, Budget and Tax has them. Uh, Ways and Means seems to have a path forward here to, to, to move in the right direction, But I mean, what this law is on the books, it's been on the books for years and years and years. And I've never met anyone who can read that, who's not a lawyer, and not think that the county's going to raise my taxes. So I'm going to show up with a pitchfork, and I'm going to raise hell, because they're not raising my taxes, and then they show up and it's like, oh, you're not raising taxes, but oh, oh, my assessment went up. So, so like delegate, what what, what can we do here? Because I, I I think you called the in the hearing. This is really dumb, right? This is dumb. It's a dumb requirement. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, anytime you have a state law that specifies the font size you have to use for something, it's dumb, right? I used to I was a middle school teacher. I used to teach this lesson on stupid laws all the time. This is a stupid law, um, and you know, it's not it's not a bad thing to to educate. Taxpayers about what's happening with taxes. In fact, that's important. We need yes. taxpayers to understand that. But this law confuses taxpayers. Um, it actively confuses them, and so I, you know, I think it needs a complete overhaul. Um, and and we need to look at it in a different way. I, if if only just this is me being a, a, a nerdy like economics tax guy. If only because it it doesn't consider inflation at all, right? I yeah. mean, it, you know, so. You're saying your taxes are going up, but really you're, 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 you're inflating, right? So yeah, I, I think it needs a total overhaul. What, what that ends up looking like, whether it happens this session, I don't know. Um, but I know it's been a, a huge uh, pain in the rear end to, to a lot of local governments for a very long time
0: yeah and and no one wants to look like you're anti transparency right. like we We have to tell people this is what the budget looks like. These are the proposed tax rates. these are the things that we're suggesting are gonna change. We're gonna invest more money here, and it's gonna cost you in this tax like all that stuff had darn well better be transparent, and everybody should have their chance to show up and be happy or be unhappy and say so. Uh, but the, but it, it really is a disappointing thing. Almost every jurisdiction every year has to hold this meeting, and they put something in the paper says notice of tax increase, and a poor dozen people show up thinking that you know this is my this is my chance to to you know give them a piece of my mind, and then they hear what's going on, and they're like oh this really wasn't the show after all. So yeah, maybe, maybe that will come. Yeah, transparency is good. This ain't it. This
1: ain't it. <laughs> Agree, agree. Um, all right. So before we let you go, one more thing that I'm going to add here: cannabis. Uh, obviously, a huge, huge discussion this year. A lot of movement. This several years in the making. Um, I just want to get your take. I know that the the House is moving two bills. The Senate may have some different ideas, but there really are two options on the table here, right? One of them is, um, for for a long time, states always put this on the ballot, right? And then we had a few states just pass a bill. And I think that's sort of people were looking around saying, "Hey, we could do it that way. But um, w- what are your thoughts here? It looks like the House wants to put this before the voters on the ballot. And um, just talk about the, the rationale there. And I think, you know, it's always probably good to get buy-in, particularly on an issue like this. There are so many things. It's not just about legalizing adult use. There are a lot of equity issues and things that have to be considered. How do you tax it? Um, so w- what are your thoughts? I mean, again, you're moving bills. But how do you see this playing out when it comes to cannabis and what Maryland's going to do moving forward?
2: I think I, I think we will end up likely putting it on the ballot. I think that's what we should do, not just because, you know, of democracy, right? We, mm-hmm. You know, people should have their say, but also because um, it, it helps to solidify the conversation. Um, if we just legalize it and it's not on the ballot, then people will keep debating sort of the fundamentals of the issue, right? Should it be legal or not, and not be able to focus on the details of it. Um, and so, you know, back in 2008, when we legalized casino gambling, I mean, it was a similar thing. When the voters approved casino gambling, like that question was settled. That was done, And we could move on to the conversations we've been having for the last, you know, 14 years about how exactly to make it happen in Maryland. So right. I think we likely end up on the ballot. Um, you know, there is the House is in a position of, of not wanting to move forward with the full structure of the industry and regulation. Part of the reason for that is equity. Um, We feel it's very important, given that the drug war was disproportionately targeted at lower income and minority communities, that we create opportunities for lower income uh, and minority business owners to participate in the industry. In order to do that, we have to do something called a disparity study that takes time. So essentially our proposal is let's put it on the ballot. Let's do some basic criminal justice adjustments immediately and do that disparity study And then next year we'll come back with the disparity study and be able to do all the detail work, Um, you know, and and there's a lot of that detail work to do, right? I mean, who gets a license, where the license located, Um, what happens with the revenue, what are the tax rates? Uh, How do you deal with driving under the influence? There's tons of details to, to legalizing cannabis.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and, you know the Senate may have different ideas, and that that that's often the case. And you, the House and the Senate will come together and figure something out. But yeah, a lot of moving parts, big deal. And I think you know, like you said, I know that I think that that those two bills have already passed second reader in the House, so they're on the way to getting out. Um, a lot of debate, obviously back and forth. But that makes a lot of sense in terms of of why you do that. I think there is also that the question of if you put it on the ballot, it becomes a constitutional amendment. Um, we know particularly with with casinos and with gambling. Um, if you put it into the constitution, you you have to, if you want to tweak it, that becomes more, more work. So is there any thought, do you have any thoughts on, you know, if we do this, then we're really enshrining it and we're going to have to, it's going to be a lot harder to make changes down the road if we need to do that.
2: Yeah. We, luckily we learned from past experience. So when we Uh legalized casinos, one of the mistakes we made was that the, the referendum, the constitutional language actually specified the number of casinos in the constitution, right? So When, you know, we had to come back when we we, uh, authorized MGM Grand to to open at at National Harbor. And um, we had to come back when we wanted to uh, authorize sports betting because that was a new type of gambling. Right. Um, With cannabis, the question we're putting on the ballot is pretty straightforward. It's should it be legal? Yes or no. And if, if you say yes, it should be legal. The General Assembly will create a regulatory structure. So we won't have to keep coming back to the ballot this time. We learned from
1: our previous mistake. Yep. So keeping it pretty, pretty generic is is that—that's on purpose.
0: I've got one last question for the delegate. I mean, we've covered lots of ground. So my question is, what do you call a beehive without an exit? Unbelievable!
1: Oh no, that's terrible. You know we had to get a dad joke in there. Uh, I love it
0: though. I love it. It makes (laughs) me.
2: I, I will tell you, I I will I will look up dad jokes just to spring them on my kids at the dinner table, just to elicit that groan. I love it.
1: <laughs> no, it's like what what if? Yeah, we're we are just those people now. I guess all of us are. So, it's pretty sad when that that makes your day. But here we are. All right. Well, delegate lookie, really appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy. Um, you know, it's been a long day, but we really really appreciate you being here. I thought it was a great conversation, and I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it. We will link up all of these, uh, these, these conversations that we've had, any relevant links, but anything uh, on your mind before we let you go, Delegate, anything we missed?
2: No, just appreciate you guys. And I appreciate, I seriously, I appreciate this podcast. There aren't many sources of information and news that go, that go deep into policy issues. I think you guys do a great job with this. Um, so thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we'll leave it there. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Delegate Eric Lutley, Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.